0: One of the uh, best things about being here is seeing the sorts of people that have shaped my own kids at their own schools. One of the worst things about being a parent of a young kid is they always bring home all the germs that I know that all of you have to worry about as well. So I've got a really bad cough that I've been fighting all week, so I'm going to do my best not to just be hacking for the next uh, hour. Though I left my bag of cough drops with my daughter at the table. Do you have a couple? If I can have two or three, I would be very appreciative. Give me a bonus four for last year. Thank you. Alright. Uh, during the 1045 slot, especially at the early parts of it, the lights kept going out and back on, so hopefully that doesn't happen. Happens today. Happens this session. I'm really excited to be here, Uh, this is my first time in a CEA conference and I've been uh, uh, really enjoyed it. i got to hear my colleague David Smith talk in the opening session and and David is just always fantastic to have the opportunity to hear. I want to let you know right off the bat um, uh, something about me and that's that I typically am a bit of a melancholic, cynical, the glass is not just half empty, but the entire earth is on fire. of <laughs> person. Uh, my wife calls me, among other things, a Debbie Downer. You might think that I'm joking, but uh, I had a colleague once that said that this Far Side comic reminded her of me, the bluebird of happiness, long absent from his life. Ned is visited by the chicken of depression. She said, "That's you." You're the chicken. <laughs> then we decided that I'm not the chicken of depression, I'm the chicken of despair. I'm not sure if that's a whole lot better. And, and this is not something that my wife disagrees uh, with me about. A couple weeks ago, Time TimeHawk, I love TimeHawk, it reminds me of good things, uh, reminded me of this encounter, uh, exchange I had with my wife. Calvin's alumni magazine was doing a short article on my forthcoming disability and inclusive communities book. I'll mention that about a, a bit more here in a minute. So this is me to my wife Allison. I was asked to rewrite part of the article because what I'd sent in initially had too much emphasis on what's wrong. And she's just like, have they met you? <laughs> um, sometimes I think that there's reasons for the negativity. And especially when I think about disability, I do I do a lot of research these days on disability. Uh, I was uh, recently down in North Carolina and I gave a talk on disability advocacy uh, and injustice. And so when I think about things like that, it's really easy for me to get negative. Um, but I'm going to do my best not to be Debbie Downer today. I'm going to do my best impression of an optimist. Um, my, Mentoring graduate school would always say, do your best impression of a calm, cool, collective person. Mm-hmm. Insert optimist. Yeah. I'm not gonna be a naive optimist, uh, but I'm gonna do my best to be an optimist nonetheless today. The primary reason for my optimism, so I, I teach at Calvin. Um, I'm a parent of three kids, all of which go to uh, Christian schools. Uh, one of our children is multiply disabled and that comes with all sorts of, of, of challenges, not just in terms of parenting, but in terms of interacting with schools. But the reason why I have hope today is, is this slide right here. And I'm really tempted just to explain the slide and have us all stare at it for an hour. Um, the, the, the boy on the right is our son, Jameson. He's 11. He's in sixth grade, he's Grand Rapids Christian. Uh, the schools that's often here. He's got a number of disabilities. He was diagnosed when he was about six weeks old as having chromosomal abnormalities. So he's missing part of one copy of one chromosome. He's also had one part of another chromosome and a third chromosome, play Red Rover, and so stuff's in the wrong space. Part of uh, uh, the way that affects him is motor control and balance issues. He went to, for Halloween last year as Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean and he walked like drunk drunk, Johnny Depp, great. Um, physical stuff is hard for him. It wasn't until about a year and a half ago, when he was about 10, that he learned how to run. And he still runs on his toes a little bit. So physical stuff is hard, but he's also got an autism diagnosis. And oftentimes that's the, the, sort of the hardest part, is seeing the social impairment that goes with it. He can go into, I remember the first few years uh, we were at in Grand Rapids, and I would drop him off at the elementary school and he's not able to tell us how his day works, so We drop him off and pick him up, and I drop him off the playground, and like there's 600 kids running around, and for much much of his own time on the playground, it was almost like he was the only one there. He was just sort of in his own head space. Kids would come up and talk to him, right? but the social impairment made it hard for him to, yeah. You know. and, and so, a couple weeks ago, his school was having a time at Sky Zone. One of the kids that goes to the school is uncle or grandparents or somebody of you the local trampoline park and so they rented out and all the fifth graders and fifth graders have a, a, a trampoline. i was thinking like you know what life would just be easier if we didn't take them i hate the thing but i thought we'd really do um but i was like no i wouldn't Jameson do you want to go to the uh sky zone party and his first response whenever you ask him a question that he's not anticipating is just no this is default no Okay, to Right, and, and the thing was, I just I was afraid of how kids were gonna treat him, right? And again, I love, this is his fourth year at the school, he's got some fantastic friends there, but just anything new, I just worry what's the dynamic gonna be like? And since he can't tell us later what stuff is like, we're often sort of, right? we're those parents that hang out in the back and just stare the whole time. Um, so I went, and I took work, and I didn't ever open the work. And I saw this like 10 minutes after getting there. And one of his friends showed up and sought him out and started playing with him. And the thing that I learned best about this photo was Jameson's leading his friend. He's not the follower here, he's the leader. And it really meant a lot to me. Um, and, and so when I think about this photograph, right, like all my parental concerns, about the future while they're still there, if there's a little bit of hope. When I think about um, my job as uh, an academic, I teach at Calvin College. I don't want to lose my phone. Um, When I think about the struggles that our disabled students have. I had a a, a pretty typical uh, growing up, I think, Um, and I don't remember having any kids with disabilities in my school. The law that said they had to be there was passed the year after I was born, 1976. Federal and state law says the kids are to be educated in the public school where they would normally, if at all possible, in my school district in Central Ohio, bust them other places. When Jameson first went to school, we realized that he was being bussed past the uh, public school we could see from our back porch. So that they could magnet <laughs> all the kids with disabilities, because it's easier to segregate them in the same classroom. Um, but that's not his experience. And almost as important as it not being his experience, that's not our daughter's experience. My, my, uh, I have our nine-year-old with me today. The six-year-old was going to come today too, but she has a birthday party this afternoon, so she could go. Um, too. The nine-year-old came, she came to the first talk, sat right here kicked the mic over at me once. But she made friends with Shelby at one of the booths out there, so she's hanging out eating chocolate um, um, <laughs> with Shelby and uh, Shelby's trips. But I think about what my daughter's experiences are like. One of my favorite stories to tell. I like to tell stories. with teachers, so and you like, like stories, too. Uh, when we first moved to Grand Rapids, and sent our kids to Grand Rapids Christian, about a month into it, uh, Emmaline, the nine-year-old. She said, I made a new friend. Great. What's their name? I don't know. <laughs> she used that for me. about am things. Well, you know, I drop you off at school every day and I pick you up in the afternoon. Like Next time we're there early enough to go to the parking lot, tell me, or to, to the playground, tell me, right? And, and we'll try to seek him out. What can you tell me to help find this student? He's got really curly hair. Okay. So the next time we got to school early enough to get there, Turns out this new friend of hers with really curly hairs in a wheelchair, and it didn't dawn on her for days to say that the way to pick him out versus everybody else is to look for the wheelchair. That's beautiful. That's why we send our kids to this sort of school. So today I want to talk about hope, and I don't want to talk about what I think of as sort of the cheap cultural kind of hope. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a Buckeye from what? Many people from Michigan. Right? <laughs> I don't mean the cheap kind of hope, like Ohio. I hope Ohio State beats Michigan again this year at football. Or I hope Trader Joe's isn't out of those really good vegan chocolate chips. Well, oftentimes, when we use hope, what we mean is something like, I've got a wish for something to come up, uh, uh, about. I've got a desire. I mean here the theological virtue of hope. The theological virtue of hope is, among other things, one of the the three theological virtues that's at the heart of the Christian tradition. Corinthians tells us that these three abide at the heart of the Christian faith. It's the kind of hope that motivates my advocacy (coughs) work. When we realized that Jameson's school back in Idaho before he was not following state and federal law, we got a little bit testy. That's the nice version of it. Uh, and then we started <coughs> testing, not just for him, but for his best friend who had Down syndrome. And then we decided that, like, it would be better if we could do this more. So we printed up business cards and we started slipping to the other parents. And within a year and a half, we got the director of special education for the district forcibly reassigned until he was allowed to retire early. Because they were afraid of a federal lawsuit the hope that makes that kind of advocacy work possible. I still do some of this in Michigan, even though our kids go to a private school. I suspect this kind of hope is why many of you are Christian educators yourself. You care about the future, and you think that what you do matters to bringing about a better future. So my plan for our time <coughs> together is this. I tell my, my uh, college students, I've got an agenda for today. All of your faculty have an agenda for today, whether they tell you or not, to be honest first I want to talk about the theological virtues in general, a little bit to give us the framework by what I mean, then when I talk about specifically the 4 hope <coughs> as a theological virtue, and then the real, right, the target to get there is to talk about how inclusive education is a locus for help. It's the kind of thing that we do that can help us as individuals, helping as a parent, help us as communities hope better, because life is hard, Parenting is hard. Teaching is hard. All these things are hard. But when we think about the ways that they can go wrong in the future, it's easy to to, to, to lean towards despair. And, and I don't need help in that direction. So, that's the agenda. <coughs> Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I teach at Calvin is, uh, I teach our ethics courses. Um, I sneeze. I teach our... Uh, Ethics courses, and we spend a fair bit of time talking about the virtues in general. Virtues are good habits of the soul by which we live rightly, of which no one makes bad use, which God works in us without us. This is Thomas Aquinas' definition of of, of, uh, virtues from the 12th century. He doesn't speak for all Christians, but he he certainly gives us a good model of what it means. Um, in the tradition. So virtues in general are just excellences. The Greek word for virtue just means excellence, arete. So these are excellences of character that make people better off in and of themselves. It is better for us to be temperate even if there's not extra coffee around for us to be gluttonous with. It is better for us to be courageous even if we don't have fear of death on the battlefield. Uh, but in particular, the theological virtues in the Christian tradition are seen seen as gifts of grace. And that's, in one sense, really easy to justify, because all goods are gifts of grace. Every good that we have in our life is uh, given us uh, by God. But the theological virtues in particular are what are called infused virtues. If I want to become uh, more temperate, what I can do is I can engage in a pattern of action that over time will shape how I think about, how I respond to, what my orientation to food and drink are. So this is what Aristotle talks about. We habituate ourselves. We make things patterns so that they become second nature to us. But the Christian tradition doesn't think that we can do patterns that will get us faith, hope, or charity. Because if we could do things that got us faith, right, well, then we earned our faith. That's not going to work. So if we have these virtues, it's because God puts them in us and we don't get rid of them. Right? We don't reject them. So they're infused in us rather than... Uh, uh, something that we can do to positively form them. Now, we can certainly do things that will make it easier for us to keep them. This is one of the reasons why church membership is so important. Being a regular part of the body of Christ helps us remain in the faith that God gives us. And something similar, I want to say, is true about hope. So, hope is seen as one of the three theological virtues. There we go. Of faith, hope, and love, or sometimes translated as charity, caritas is the Latin here. So a little bit about each of these. I'm going to be quickest about hope in this presentation because I'm going to come back to it in, in, in more detail here in a minute. But faith is basically a kind of intellectual assent to the revealed truths that are at the heart of the Christian uh, religion, Christian belief. It's knowledge of what God, knowledge of who God is, what he expects for us. God is both the object and the ground and the perfection of our faith. If you think about Christian belief, right, some of it's really weird. You've got one one being that's three persons. You've got one person that has two complete natures, right? Like, Christianity and math are strange together sometimes, right? (laughs) And, and, and as a professional, I, I can't argue into the Trinity. I can't argue you into belief in the Incarnation. I believe it because the Church teaches it, and I think the Church, as the body of Christ, is trustworthy. Right? So faith is a kind of intellectual trust. Hope then builds off of faith, where the things that we say that we believe, because things that people that we believe are reliable, tell us, Are actively in charge of bringing about the perfection of that, right? So um, the Trinity is weird, but Christianity also says that one day there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more suffering, and like if I'm honest for a minute that makes no more sense to me in terms of my experience. Like, What would that look like? I don't know. But that's our hope because that's what the Church as the body of Christ teaches us. And so we look forward to this thing that we can't understand because the, thing, the person that promised us it to us is somebody that we can trust. So faith is a kind of trust that the one who's revealing to us about our faith can be believed. And then this leads to, to love, or in some uh, translations, charity. This is going to be the, the complete perfection of our desires, of our natures as human beings. Uh, the first hour that I was giving this, Emma our nine-year-old, was sitting in the front so I could use her as an example. She's still giving me the example. She's not going to be here. Right, uh, so, so I think that how we love our kids, how we love our spouses, how we love our friends is pictured on right, uh, how we're supposed to look up. Uh, my nine-year-old has, has a day off because her school has professional development. She wanted to come to, right, to South Bend for a conference. Why do you want to do that? Well, because, Dad, there's three of us, and we don't often get, like, alone time. This is a way of just me and you. You do love me. Mm -hmm. It's a desire for union of some sort with the person that you love. And if I love you back, I want what's good for you. Now, this is the hard part as a parent. (laughs) Knowing what the good is that we really want for our kids is, is hard. But love in general is going to involve this desire for the good of the person that you love and desire to be united with that person, right? And this is uh, modeled on how we think about love as a theological virtue. The perfection of my nature as a human is to be united with God as the greatest good in all of existence. And if I am united, if I desire God for God's own sake and I desire to be united with God, then I'm going to be united through that desire with everything else that God loves too. This is why you can't love God and hate your neighbor. This is why you can't love God and hate your neighbor. This is why you can't love God and hate the earth. What it means to be rightly united to God is to be rightly united to God in union for the good of all that he has made. So there we go. That's three weeks of my ethics course in about 17 minutes. We're
1: <laughs>
0: gonna <laughs> talk more about hope in particular. So under the second part of my agenda. As already mentioned, hope builds off of faith. It's going to be faith that makes possible hope. Right? If I couldn't trust what God has revealed to me, I couldn't live in light of that revelation and trust. Hope is the reaching out for the goods that are revealed as part of our faith. It strengthens the will to allow us to uh, withstand adversity. Right? So if there wasn't any adversity, we wouldn't need hope. It's just like once we see God face to face, we won't need the theological virtue of faith, because we'll be direct access. So this is, in in, in the most misquoted, well, that's probably an overstatement. One of the misquoted passages of scripture, how many weddings used 1 Corinthians 13 as the object of the wedding sermon? not talking, Paul's not talking about spouses. He's talking about our relationship to God. What our, right? Faith, faith hope and charity, and of these, one remains. Eventually, we will have no more need for faith because we'll have direct experiential access with the entire trinity, whatever exactly that is. We won't need hope to withstand adversity because there won't be any adversity anymore. But love will remain. So love had, or uh, hope has this fourfold nature. First, it's a movement towards what does, in fact, perfect us. Of course, what perfects us directly is God. If something doesn't really perfect you, then your hope for that thing is misplaced. Just like, if what I want for my kids really isn't for their good, then my love is misplaced. It's probably proper to say that I'm not really loving them. I think I'm loving them. If I hope for something that really isn't going to be good for me, then I'm not really hoping because the object of hope is God, and God wouldn't have something different in your mind. So God is the object of our hope, but as a infused virtue, God's also the cause of our hope. So if I have hope, it's because God infuses it to me, and brings it about in me. And since the theological virtue of hope aims at union with God, where we find our complete perfection and fulfillment, then it's also through hope about my union with God, that I can have hope for other kinds of things that also participates in God's goodness. So when I say things like, I hope for a good future for my kids despite the climates and everything that we're doing for it, then that can be a hope if it is rooted in this kind of union for both of us and all of the earth uh, with respect uh, to union with God. A year and a half ago, this is the book I mentioned uh, in the uh, Time Hawk. I wrote *Disability-Inclusive Communities* for Calvin Press. The purpose of this book was to try to show that making various communities that we're parts of—our churches, our schools—more welcoming to and valuing of disabled individuals is good for all of us. It's not just good for those. Inclusion is not just a mission; it's ministry too. It's ministry with. It's good for all of us. Part of what it means to be Christian is to care about those who are outcast, downtrodden, mistreated by culture at large. To be Christian as a community, we must embrace the the weak, the oppressed, the marginalized. But we don't often do this very well. Here's the closing part of chapter one of that book. The book is written to be, you can read the whole thing in 47 minutes on a plane ride from Grand Rapids to Chicago. the goal (laughs) my progress, said I succeeded did she do that my goal in the coming pages is to help us take steps to make our communities more welcoming people who feel different or unvalued and excluded tend to disappear from our lives we forcibly disappeared many with disabilities in our history through institutionalization segregated schooling Exclusion, discrimination, ableism. But we've also made them so sufficiently unwelcome that they've often withdrawn on their own from our lives. And that makes us worse off, even if we understand why they might not want to persist in a community that doesn't properly die, right? I don't blame them for that. We're worse off and they're worse off. Let's try to better understand individuals with disabilities. Let's own up to our cultural history of forcible exclusion. Let's learn to make our communities more inclusive and welcoming to those with disabilities. For when we do that, all of us will be better off. This is part of the good that's going to perfect us, individually and corporately, that our hope aims at. Second, hope is forward-looking. The good that we seek in hope is a good that we don't already have. Nobody hopes for what they already have, because you've got it. You might hope to keep it, but you've got it. And it's this part of the talk where my temptation to be the chicken of despair sort of, like, overwhelms me, right? Because this good that we say we're looking for, it's forward-looking precisely because we don't have it. Here's just some of the relevant data. It's still legal in over 20 states to forcibly sterilize people with intellectual disabilities because it is still Supreme Court precedent that, quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Oliver Wendell Holmes, for the majority. A few years ago in, in Idaho, where we lived, I realized that the Idaho State School and Colony, one of Idaho's institutions that had practiced forcible sterilization, was about seven miles from our house. So on a Sunday afternoon, my son and I went and walked the grounds, thinking that this 20 years have been pretty good Idaho hasn't done one since the early 80s, but we're still legal in Idaho. Forcible sterilization. 80,000 people in 100 years that we have forcibly sterilized. You know where the Nazis got their eugenics from? US science from the teens and 20s. They were just more efficient at putting it into practice. The ADA is, is uh, constantly, routinely violated, <clears throat> so one of the things the ADA requires is accessible parking. This was my place of employment last winter. Walking over from the hotel this morning, have you used the Skybridge? She noticed the door to get you from the sky bridge into the convention center, didn't have the assess, uh, power assist. If it takes more than nine pounds of pressure to open that door, it's a violation of a law that's been on the books since 1990. Our own son's experience with IDEA being violated by state and federal law and individuals disability. Or, uh, in, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, initially passed in 1976, we made in 1990. I've been in 20-some schools, and I've not yet been as an advocate, and I've not yet found a school that's doing everything the law requires. We still use disability-related terms as slurs in our culture. You might have heard of the spread the word to end the word campaign about retard, but idiot, moron, crazy, All these terms that, many of them for a long time, were legal diagnoses which were used to forcibly sterilize and separate from parents. are still just tossed around as if they were nothing. Children with disabilities. uh, 82% of children with disabilities report being bullied at school. That's double the rate for children in general. Now it's bad enough that 40% of our children in general find themselves bullied at school. But you're twice as likely to be bullied if you have a disability. Increased risk of sexual assault, 83% of women with an intellectual disability, 83% have been raped compared to 15% of the general US population. 40% of men with an intellectual disability have been raped compared with 3% of the uh, non-disabled adult male population. Increased risk of police violence, there's been a a lot of conversation in the last 10 years about uh, violence towards people of color. Legit topic, right? I'm not trying to minimize it, but the data suggests that you're at a higher risk being disabled, especially autistic, for police violence than if you're a person of color. And if you're a male person of color who's also disabled, right, it's just astronomical. Um, this is one of the books that I get some of my not very pleasant stuff from. Mark Shelley wrote an entire book on disability hate crime. The rate of conviction of violence against people with disabilities is 5% conviction rate versus a 70% assault conviction rate in general. So you're more likely to be assaulted, and you're a lot less likely for the person that did it to be punished. Disabled adults are less than half as likely to be employed. The gap is growing. Many of them who are employed are employed at sub minimum wage, because of a loophole in the fair labors and standards. Uh, It's possible, uh, as goodwill often does, to pay disabled workers as little as $2 an hour, rather than a federal minimum wage. Selective abortion against prenatal screenings. Even among Christian circles, the percentage of self-identified Christians that engage in prenatal screening before IVF, which is also eugenic, Is about the same as the general population. Issues about less good health care, the way that we present disability as something to be feared or pitied. Right now, at Calvin, as uh, earlier today, uh, Tim Tebow was speaking at Calvin, and he's known for the uh, night to shine proms. Look at this wonderful ministry we do for kids with disabilities. I texted a colleague who's there. I was like, ask him my question. Why do you think kids with disabilities need their own problems rather than fighting to make them welcome with the ones that are already on the books? Mm-hmm. I don't want my son going to a special problem. i want the same problem because he gets the same opportunities. This is not your pity project. Work to make your community better. Good thing about there. Um, this was a national, I sometimes I don't have very good self-restraint. This was a national autism campaign by one of the largest autism research groups at New York University uh, a number of years ago that involved ransom notes from autism. We have your son. We will make sure he will not be able to care for himself or to interact socially as long as he lives. This is only the beginning. I Wonder why we've got problematic cultural understandings of autism. I don't know a single autistic adult that likes Autism Speaks. By the way, the Light It Up loop campaign. Find autistic adults in your local communities and find out what they really think about autism speaks. Adults with disabilities are 40% more likely never to attend a church than non-disabled adults. Wouldn't it be nice if the place that was most welcoming of adults with disabilities was the church who are living less likely? One of the reasons why is because... The church campaign and is exempt from the ADA. You don't have to have your churches accessible because <laughs> churches had a massive campaign to write the law so they didn't have to follow it. Christian schools often don't accept kids with disabilities because they don't have to. And we found out that uh, Idaho schools violating this. Uh, State and federal rights, we called the local Christian school, we said, hey, we've got three kids, one of them is in, in first grade, we're thinking about transferring him over, in then it's October. Great, we'd love to have him. Okay, but just say no. He's disabled. Not a problem, our entire facility is on the first level, there's no stairs. Great. Kind of walks like he's drunk, but he can use stairs. He's got intellectual, emotional, social disability, I'm sorry, we don't do that. It's too hard. Your kid's not worth the time. So, my hope, let's see, negative (laughs) stuff. I'll get better now. My hope is for a world in which our son is properly valued. But that's not the present good. What happens when he graduates? The data angers me precisely because the world does and will continue to mistreat him and others like him, because they see him as a disability, not as a person, as having less value simply because of his diagnosis. The future good that I want is not good here. Third, the Future good that is hoped for but not yet here is going to be arduous or difficult. Think of all those problems I just mentioned, and honestly, my my it's it's longer than that list. A few weeks ago, I gave a talk at North Carolina on disability uh, uh, advocacy and justice, and that was an hour-long presentation of just all the injustices that people well. There's an entire hour of more than but not all of the injustices. What would it take to fix those problems? How do we get there from where we're at? Where that picture I showed you of Jameson and his friend is not just a glimpse of his life, but every moment. Not just his, but the 20% of the American population that has a disability of some sort or other. Uh, how do we get there from here? What's it going to take? It's going to require a radical reorientation of our entire culture. Stop having movies at which, when the character becomes disabled, the question they face is, "Do I kill myself, million-dollar baby?" Where disability or scarring is used as a way of indicating evil or pity. Right? Insert just about every Disney movie in the world there. We have to change our schools, churches, our funding structures for stuff. Healthcare industry, our personal interactions with people, our valuing of human life, it's hard. Inclusion is hard. If your school works to do this, God bless you, because I know it's not easy. I know it's not cheap. And those schools that put their time, their energy, and their finances to bring about their mission like my kids' school does, God bless them. When I, found, when I found out that I got a job at Calvin, they require uh, faculty kids to go to private Christian schools. And our only interaction with it was the school that wouldn't even try to educate our son. So I had a bit of a negative like, taste in my mouth. So we negotiated for an exemption that if we couldn't find a Christian school, that did what we thought was good for him. Neither him nor his two younger sisters would have to go there because we wanted all of our kids there. And we we, we found a number of them. They're not perfect, but they work with us, and they do it it's hard and expensive, but it means so much. I found out the reason why they're so good at it is because there's this nonprofit in the area that's been training schools to do that for 35 years. This is the CLC network, and somebody put me in contact with them and they said, "Your hearts our heart, we are heart, to me and are bored." so I'm on their board now. they're not all along. Um, and I'm on that board because of I care as a parent, as an educator, for what they do. Because they help make the hard less hard. Finally, fourfold nature, done number four. The good has to be possible to attain, even though difficult. Only that which we can achieve elicits hope. Imagine if there was some good that you wanted, you knew you didn't have it, and there was no way to get it. Then your response is despair. The theological virtue of hope is contrary to the vice of despair. So that's why, despite what my colleague says, I'm not really the chicken of despair. Is a radically inclusive society possible? Yep. It's promised. But it's not here. Let's work to make it. With God's help, if I didn't think it could be possible, I would despair for Jameson's future. And now I just and tempted to despair for his future. This brings me to part three. In closing, what does all this have to do with inclusive education at Christian schools? Well, you're all smart people, you're already starting to see the connections. Since the virtue of hope is primarily with God, there's a sense in which inclusive education isn't going to get us all the way there. Because the object of our hope is God inclusive education might be a means to help some people get there. It's an infused virtue. If we have hope, it's because God gives it to us. But I think that inclusive education can help us, can help us hope better. One of the uh, illustrations I don't have in this, uh, I was able to reprint it in, in, in the book. The church that we go to has a quilting club, and they've taken a painting that somebody, one of the artists, Right. The, the fact that I go to church with like 15 30 or 100 Calvin faculty, right? we've got some great resources, we've got like two liturgical artists. But somebody painted this picture and the quilters turned it into a quilt and it's a top-down image of a table. And around the table are sitting kids or people anywhere from an infant to a grandmother. Different races and there's a, one of the people sitting around the table has a wheelchair. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. That's where, right. so, so, our church art can help us hope. The pictures in our schools can help us hope. I was asked to uh, consult with a local Christian school. Anybody from Livingstone Academy here? They said, we, we know you have an eye towards this stuff. Come and look at it. And one of the things, they asked me to do two specific things when I was there walking around the school. Look at our art. Is our art welcoming for disability? Look at our books in the library. Do we have enough books that treat disability as a normal part of human life and not something to be feared, stigmatized, or pitied?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Those were great questions. Love you to ask those questions. Look this picture again. I was texting these to my wife when I was at this conference. That makes a difference. That doesn't just make a difference for Jameson. Makes a difference for our nine-year-old, who has a new friend. Makes a difference to our six-year-old. Uh, she, our six-year-old, loves to hug. Um, but as so long as you're not a stranger, she'll sit on your lap. She'll ask her to to your house. But if you're a stranger, she's only gonna you a hug. We believe in not making our daughters or our sons like hug people simply as a right? like. No, if you want to say no to a hug, you get to say no to a hug. It's your body. So when Maggie Magdalene, the six-year-old, was in kindergarten, there was somebody in her, cl- uh, uh, in her class that has Down syndrome. And that student loves to hug. So we had a conversation. You have to recognize this friend. You have to give her a high five. You have to shake her hand. Fistful, whatever you want to do. right? You don't have to hug her if you don't need to. And she just said, you know what? Hugging makes her feel happy. Even though I don't like it, I'm going to do it. God bless you, kid. The six year old didn't come with me on the trip because she has a, a birthday party she's going to, I think I mentioned earlier. You know what a six-year-old's going for his Halloween issue? Can I go as a service dog? <laughs> <laughs> what? Service dogs help people. So I found how to borrow a service dog harness. God bless my, my crusty two sizes, too small, grinchy parenting heart. That's good. Imagine this kid in 15 years, going to the left, when he's a new teacher. Imagine him in 25 years when he's the principal. 35 years when he's the chair of the board on the new fundraising campaign for a school district. Or when he's an architect designing a sky bridge to get from a hotel to a convention center. Or he's an architect designing a church. Or he's somebody putting together a sports league and thinking, you know what? I had this friend that didn't used to take part in part of what I had as a kid because our sports leagues didn't make him feel welcome. There's a session later today on inclusive sports leagues. <laughs> like that. Yeah. What you all do in your classrooms every day matters for all sorts of reasons, educationally, But they matter, in part, because people can be valued or excluded based upon the patterns that they pick up in our schools. It's going to make a difference to the kind of world that my son inherits. I've been reading a book called Academic Ableism by Jay Dalmage, and it's really primarily written at uh, higher education. And higher education in many ways is even worse than primary and secondary education. But Dahlmidge writes, the classroom shapes larger communities. Or think back to those of you that were David Smith's talk this morning. Enormous cultural power as teachers. You do. I want to encourage all of you to either begin or continue the work that that you're doing in your schools to make it more inclusive. Isn't just about your classes, though. So how your entire school approaches disability? Do you give an eye towards kids in wheelchairs when you plan field trips, or when the entire day for a day out, uh, right? Their their field day is about competitive, uh, uh, um, shoot, like the tag team races that you do. Or, Really, thank you. Sometimes I get tired of my words. Entire day of competitive relay races where competition is just foreign to some people's brains and their bodies don't work to help them do it. It was one of the few days I've been at my kid's school and felt like he should have just stayed home that day because he was there. But none of the activities were things that he could participate in. Think about your field trips. Think about books your school buys. your know, art that but it has. Ableism, the present devaluing of disabled lives, isn't just personal, it's structural. Think about uh, David. I'd love to come to like another state here with my colleagues from across campus. David Smith was talking about we've all got good personal reason to be the one that responds quick to email when parents or other teachers email. And think of how all of us trying to do something good for us makes a culture that's repulsive, where there's no blurring of lines between the Home life. I'm a college professor. Like there are no lines in my in, in my life. Um, imagine oh, it would be nice feel like he, There was sometimes the day you thought you'd done enough work and you clock out. Teachers don't get this opportunity, and in part because we make the culture where that's not what we do. Good intentions can sometimes make bad structures. It's it's great on that. Dalmage writes teachers recognize the diversity of students they teach. But teachers must also recognize their roles within institutions, disciplines, and perhaps even personal agendas in which they may seek to avoid and disavow the very idea of disability to give it no place. You can exclude without meaning to if you don't give the right sorts of thoughts to how people can belong. So the steps to work towards the future are difficult but possible. But they've got to be both personal and structural. As, an, uh, as a parent that goes into IEP meetings with other kids, you can be around a table and every teacher, aid, everybody there has good intentions and you still get a horrible IEP that disadvantages the kids. Because everybody's just looking to do their proper little role and like nobody's coordinating, nobody's making sure that every aspect of the kid's life Public schools have to off, off, offer family counseling to families of kids with IEPs. Guess what? Never heard a of school offer of that. They have to offer alternate sports opportunities. They don't. Nobody's trying to exclude. Nobody's trying to include. Right? Or the ways in which, as a right, uh, parents going into IEP meetings are often treated as there to be informed rather than participate. And I don't know how many times I've been in IEP meetings with families where somebody from the school says, the IEP top team has decided. No, they didn't. Mom, no. Do you think that the parent doesn't have an equal role here? You can't enact the IEP without their permission. I know that they're going to call it a file complaint. It's on my form that I've got right here. Nobody's trying to make the parent to feel worse. They're just trying to get through the IEP to get back to their class because they know that the school doesn't have proper aid coverage or sub coverage for IEP meetings. One of the things we had to front the school is, is sue his school with in Idaho was he needs an aide to engage the, the general education classroom. Our son does. What do schools do when a teacher's sick? Get a sub. What do they do when an aide's sick? Don't push the kid in. You're not giving my son access to an education in light of a teacher or staff illness simply because he doesn't, or because he has a disability. Guess what? It's a, it's a discrimination lawsuit, and if I can get other parents to sign off on it too, now it's a class action. How about you change your policy? Schools sometimes don't. Forest Hills School, where I go into sometimes. This is a school that our son would go to if he didn't go to Grand Rapids Christian. Every fight we had in Idaho, we had at Forest Hills, and they were supposedly one of the best schools in Michigan. The first meeting I went into for another family in Forest Hills, they admitted to having changed the student's placement without notifying, much less consulting their parents. I just said, we're stopping. We're not continuing this meeting until you just write down in a minute. You have violated federal law. Every meeting I've been into in that district since, they send legal counsel. They're not looking out for the good of the student. And at one meeting, the parent or the, the uh, legal counsel said, Kevin, I don't appreciate you. I laugh. I don't care. I'm not here for you. I'm here for the student. i will to fight for her if I've got to. The law was my weapon. When we sent our kids to Grand Rapids Christian, we had to give up an IEP as the one for t- That made it so hard for me. Because the IEP had become my leverage or my club to make the school do what I knew they needed to do. And I had to give that up. I hurt. But I chuffed at this school. They couldn't agree. They couldn't good. He wouldn't go there. Pictures like this can help us imagine the good that we want for our students. I've already mentioned how our daughter's education is better off, because they have this. Until our communities are marked by the kind of radical inclusion and sense of belonging that I think we aim at in Christian education, may we persevere in our hope towards that goal. As St. Paul says, some of my students would laugh. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I got a friend, also a parent of a child with disabilities. Uh, Their second child was diagnosed at week 20 with uh, trisomy 18 which has a 95% in utero death rate. And their son Samuel lived for five hours. And my friend Aaron wrote a beautiful book called Loving Samuel about their struggle, their family struggle through that pregnancy and after. And it's beautiful in terms of, of how his church helped him hope when he couldn't. Here's a prayer that he wrote about a week ago. And he posted it on Facebook. I was like, that's so good. Where'd you come up with it? Or where'd you get it from? He's like, mind? Can I use it? He said, yes. So in closing, this is our prayer today. Hope is not a clutching fear. It's the anticipation of goodness still possible, even in the midst of irreplaceable loss. He's talking about Samuel. It does not deny the suffering of loss. It holds out for the possibility of its ultimate redemption. Lord, I pray in hope. Come on. My battery must be in. There we go. Lord, I pray in hope. If I was going to make this any better, I would just take all the singulars and make them plural. Lord, we pray in hope. We pray for a hope that will not flinch in the face of loss. We pray that our hopes will be borne along by a deep trust in your desire to restore all things. We pray in hope for a better hope. we still got eight-ish minutes. So
2: if there's questions, yeah? I uh, learned recently that, that atheists, I think, fear death less than theists and Christians. Really? And my guess is it's because their standard of expectation is just lower. They, they, they don't have to cling to a hope. They're, they just resign themselves or accept yeah. life as is. And so. As you give your talk, I I think how much of what you have to wrestle with comes precisely because of your Christian faith. But then I think, well, Calvin kind of took care of that. He said, don't have too much hope, at least in this way. Everyone <laughs> you see around you is totally afraid. Totally afraid. Don't expect anything good from anyone. So I guess without knowing it, it's kind of a personal question, but but, um, to to what extent do you see these things that happen as, wow, given my expectation that there should be nothing good that happens, am I grateful for these small little things rather than having this much higher expectation that is always not being met?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's going to sound weird because I've already announced where I teach. there are a lot of things that I disagree with John Calvin on. He, he said, in order to, to, to be entrusted with communion, you've got to be able to understand at least a certain bit of the Reformed faith. And so he actively denied the Eucharist to individuals with intellectual disabilities, because they couldn't recite the Creed. You well, know, that's problematic. Uh, and, and, and so this is one of the places where, actually, um, I, I'm okay with total depravity. Total depravity is about breadth rather than depth. So properly understood, total depravity says that all parts of our existence, individual and corporate, is affected by sin. I'm fully on board with that. Our structures are even. But I'm not fully on board with it understood as depth. Right? You can't sin away the goodness that God has put in you because you don't have that power. And so when, uh, when Calvin says some of these super negative things like, you're no more than a worm, right? Maybe that was Luther. also had some problem out of um, I, I just don't think that uh, he properly understood the value that's in even sin, right? The good that's in even sinful humans. And that makes it easy for us to devalue folks. So I'm, on this respect, a better Jesuit than I am a, a reformed person. But I was educated by the Jesuits. They would take that as a compliment. Right? So, so, I mean, I think that there's attention. there. Yeah. But part of what I understand about the Christian faith is that we're to be actively working to bring heaven here on earth because that's where it's going to be. This is, right? Christianity is not an escapist religion where we don't have to care about what happens to the world because we get a new one. The fact that Christians are less likely to recycle boggles my mind. That Christians are less likely, as an atheist, to care about climate change, right, I think is a massive failure in the neck of the church. We're not looking forward to getting a new heaven, where this one gets transformed. But why muck it up right before it's transformed? That's what I think about climate change, and that's what I think about these structures. So we're not going to get all the way there. We, right? We, we not only can, but we're commanded to work towards that goal. As I understand it, and if that, this is being recorded a little delicate, if that makes me a bad Calvinist, then I guess I'm a bad Calvinist. Does that that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I just said I'm too hopeful to be a good Calvinist, by the way. (laughs) Other questions, topics, discussion?
2: I don't know if I want to ask this because I don't want it to come (laughs) off as insulting.
0: Okay. Right, I've got so, if you refuse to answer, yep.
2: please feel free. Kay. Here's my question. I love your passion.
0: Thank you.
2: Would you be this passionate on this subject area if you yourself perhaps
0: did not have a special need? Not... Biographically, i have to answer that question. I wouldn't, and that hurts me to admit. The only reason, right? This
2: makes you human.
0: It does, right? But again, I think almost everybody that I know that's a disability advocate or I'm a philosopher, works in philosophy of disability, does so because either they themselves have a disability or a close family member does. And that's honest, but it's really unfortunate. I look back at the first um, 38 years, right now. Oh, math is hard. 35 uh, ish years of my life when I was basically culturally indifferent to disability? And I repent. In fact, when I look back about how I was as a parent for this first five or six years, we had a disability. I thought the fact that, right, I thought this was a tragedy. And I've had to come to grips not only with that I'm the parent of a disabled son, but I'm a parent of a disabled son who thought that the right response to finding out he was disabled was to mourn. And that hurts. But right. Christianity is about confession. <laughs> so yeah, that's I understand why you have the hesitancy. Uh, uh, but no, that's exactly, I think, what's wrong. And I don't think I was a bad person, well, I mean, I am a bad person, but I don't think I'm like much worse than the average person. <clears throat> it was just my fir- first 35 years of life, I was and. and in a country, and in churches that just didn't care. It's not surprising I was like that. But it's, right, it's something I lament. So, right, fortunately I believe in a God who brings good things out of all things. Life from death. And if he can use my bad experience to give me a passion for his kingdom, I'm okay with that. But I wish it had to take it now. Thank you, but I, I got
1: to like make up for those first thirty-five years. <laughs> That's proper Calvin's guilt.
0: Uh, I, I'm really good at that part of Calvin's. but I'm also I got a number of friends that are Catholic, and they say that I've got the honorary Catholic guilt card yeah. too. So I don't know like who gets that card, like you know, like I don't know who wins that football game, whichever one's from Ohio. <laughs> Anybody else? I'm really easy to find. Find me on Calvin's website or kevintimpe.com is to contact. Uh, if you want to follow up later, if somebody from the first session asked me for some of the citations on some of my depressing stats, but they have to get right feel free to follow up. Um, appreciate your time and thoughts. Go, go to your own communities and, 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 and make it like that picture. Thank you.